0: everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. Hello, I'm Jake Weaver and I'm so glad to be with you once again. We've had quite the run of episodes. It's been uh, really good. We've had some really great guests. Astrology, exorcism, channeling, pagans and witches. Oh my, it's been so great. Uh, But today we're having another sit down and hang out. And we're going to listen to another incredible lecture by the one and only Manly P. Hall. It's all about karma. Today we're going to learn about karma. And uh, today I invited a guest. You know, if you go back to episode 10, you'll know that I did a lecture episode with Manly P. Hall, but it was just me and you and Manly P. Hall. This time I invited a guest to join us for our little lecture. And she's Bryn Anderson, the owner of Vinyl Force Herbs. She was a guest all the way back on episode three. And she's here now. Hello, Bryn Anderson.
1: Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me.
0: She's here at our lovely studio hanging out. I invited her to come by, she had the time. We're going to listen to this lecture together, and we're going to just kind of take notes comment if we can. I know Manly P. Hall just likes to talk and talk and talk. So maybe we'll just take notes and then at the end we'll we'll talk about all the things he said. But I just want to say, how are you doing today, Bryn?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. We got some coffee and I don't normally drink coffee, but uh, today I felt the need.
1: Yeah, it's a special treat. Yeah, we're gonna have some coffee.
0: We're gonna hang out. We're gonna listen to this lecture together. and I really want you to learn something from this. This is gonna be really huge because If you didn't listen to episode 10 and you don't know who Manly P. Hall is, let me just take a little bit of time to bring you up to speed. So Manly P. Hall was born a long time ago. He was born, actually I believe, uh, you know, now I'm gonna have to look this up, but he's he's a great philosopher. He wrote all kinds of books, uh, including The Secret Teachings of All Ages. He wrote uh, The Secret Destiny of America, huge name in esoteric circles huge name in occult circles and he gave like 8000 lectures he actually gave 8000 highly advanced deeply informative lectures throughout his career in addition to writing all the books that he wrote you know if you listen to episode 10 i really go in deep to his uh, kind of his biography and his life story okay here we go he was born March 18th, 1901, and he died August 29th, 1990. He was murdered. He was unfortunately murdered, but he was giving lectures all the way up until the day he died, pretty much. Wow.
1: 1908 to 1990? 1901. 1901. Even earlier. So he died at 89,
0: and not even of like health-related issues. Right,
1: he could have still kept Probably running. Probably
0: another 10 years. He was a really healthy guy. And uh, but alas, what happened happened, and here we are. Karma, karma. Somebody's, <laughs> somebody's karma. Somebody's you, karma. You, you know, I know they what would, I mean. Well, let's I'm talk fair. about that. I think that they could say when people say that they're murdered, sometimes the perspective is that they did something in a previous life, in a previous lifetime, and that karma then follows them to the next life, in which uh, you know they have to suffer the cause and effect their the, the effect of what their action was in a previous life or many lifetimes before. It's hard for me to believe that about mainly P hall mm-hmm. because you know, he, all his lectures, his 7,000 lectures, they were all deeply spiritual, deeply positive, deeply loving, putting people on the right path, showing people the right direction, giving people authentically good information. So it's hard for me to believe that somewhere in the, the energy, the spirit of that person, the light being, Manly P. Hall, that has multiple lifetimes. Somewhere in there he may have murdered someone. It's hard for me to believe, but according to sc- some schools of thought, that's possible. That would
1: be a interesting.
0: What do you think about that, Brad? Um,
1: I suppose that's a potential. It also could be that his being murdered was karma for someone else. That perhaps was a, even a gift, someone might say, to... Carry that out? Like that he gave himself to some I don't know, that sounds confusing. Yeah, that
0: was very confusing. Let's (laughs) unpack that. that? Can we unpatch that? We unpack that. We're not gonna unpatch the patch that you just gotta explain yourself.
1: I mean so someone else is someone else murders this person who is highly spiritual and has all of this knowledge and and uh all of these you know, laws that he speaks of and teaches to other people, and then his end is that someone else murders him, I guess I'm looking at that person's karma. And it d- may not have anything to do with Manly P. Hall. I guess what I meant by... Uh, yeah,
0: but then he attracted the action to him, so then it would be, I mean, his karma, being murdered and leaving his life this way, you would think would be, or leaving a life in that way, would be some sort of you know so, some sort of uh accumulation of certain karma in order to achieve that
1: i suppose so
0: it's hard to say, I don't, really hard to say. I don't really know i don't really know i'm still i i don't under i'm still lost on the gift part but that's okay we'll no. figure that out because it definitely wasn't a gift from from my no, perspective no, no, I don't i'm mean just that. kidding
1: i mean i'm, I'm just kidding of but a selfless some sort of I don't know. It was just a, a postulation of some, oh, like like, like somehow he gave act he, of manly P Hall giving himself up in order for someone else's karma to be figured uh, out. Okay, that that's makes I mean. more
0: sense now. Okay, that's the unpacking I was looking for. So you <laughs> feel like his, you know, he ge- he gave his life so somebody could perpetuate the karma that they needed in order to advance even if it was negative i mean potentially
1: i I don't necessarily think that it's just one idea one idea that's not i'm not stuck on that idea right I just one of many right because we don't really know
0: for sure no we don't really know at all and it's just really sad i guess that's what we're really going at is that it's super sad that he had to go that way he could have gone for 20 more years after giving so much of his life to other people, dedicating his life to to service, his light. He dedicated his life to service. He dedicated his life to service. And he just keeps giving and giving from beyond the grave, honestly, because we're listening. We're going to listen to another amazing lecture by Manly P. Hall. And it's going to blow you away. And uh, you're just going to absolutely love it. The thing is, is that a lot of people don't know about Manly P. Hall. Like you think about all the people that are out there, the big names like Joseph Campbell and, Ram Dass and and a lot of these spiritual guys and then you even get in the darker uh, edge of that world and you think about Aleister Crowley and stuff and all those names are just out there. They're out there but Manly P. Hall is somehow you got to dig a little bit to find Manly P. Hall and then once you do you realize whoa this guy has got a significant amount of knowledge that he's trying to share with the world. So we're going to listen how, how do you feel about listening to this uh, episode, Bri? Oh,
1: I'm excited. I love Mainly Pee Hall. Yeah.
0: How are things in Vital Force Herbs? How are things in the herbalism world?
1: They're doing great. Uh, just finished up the harvest season, just uh, harvested some ella campaign and marshmallow roots, kind of putting the garden to rest and getting t- ready to make a new big batch for the new year. Okay. Well,
0: that's great Uh great news. There's growth, there's forward movement, there's progress in the microcosm and the macrocosm. So much is going on. We're moving forward, people. We're definitely moving forward. And now what we're going to do is fire up this amazing lecture. We're going to pipe in the audio. I always say that. We're going to pipe in the audio. But before we do this, this is what I need you to do. Look, I have access to all my stats. I have access to my Spotify numbers, I have access to all my numbers from all the platforms that this podcast is on. So I know who's out there. I I can see the the growth worldwide. I can see the growth. I I live in Portland. Obviously, you know, I live in America. You can see the growth nationwide. And I'm just so proud of it. I'm so thankful. But we need more. We need to get the word out more. There's so much positive information on this podcast And the guests that come to this podcast, so many great ones that we've had, they need to get their information out there more. So tell a friend who likes podcasts because, you know, everybody's into podcasts now. It's the new, potentially the new form of media that could be the most consumed in the future. We're not there yet. 20 years from now, it could be that way. So tell your friend that loves podcasts, tell your family members, tell them about midnight on earth. It's such a great podcast. We're really building an awesome international community because that's the goal. The goal is the heaven on earth worldwide community where we're global citizens. And it's just so great, but we have to get there and it takes information getting out there. It takes information to make evolution and, uh, so I need your help. Tell everyone you know. Tell everyone that loves these kind of things, these topics, these subjects, and, and beyond. Midnight on Earth, midnightonearth.com is the website. Instagram, of course, I need you guys to all be a follower. All be a follower. It helps get the word out at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That helps to get the word out. And then, you know, we're growing the audience even more. I'm so proud that we're in even more and more countries we're up to 16 countries which is so cool we we want all the countries like i always say we're gonna have everybody even antarctica i don't know if that's a country yet <laughs> i know it's a continent but uh, we'll get that with those guys in the little base up there uh so we'll listen because we want them to grow and learn and, and have a fantastic experience as a human as well so There you go. That's just the little self-promotion kind of thing that we need to do in in order to get this thing going bigger and bigger and bigger before we dive into Manly P. Hall. So this lecture is called How Karma Works. It's by the great Manly P. Hall. And these recordings are just so valuable. They're so timeless and they're so necessary right now as we all work towards personal development, human development, growth, change, all these things that we want, Manly P. Hall is just right there helping us. So here we go. That was just the huge introduction, the huge little introduction. How karma works. Manly P. Hall, here we go.
2: Karma is an oriental word which has found its way into most English dictionaries. It stands for a principle of Eastern philosophy which is variously interpreted. To the average Western thinker, particularly uh, the theologian, the term is objectionable, although the equivalent is found in the New Testament. As we are told in the New Testament, as a man soweth, so shall he reap. And this is very largely the traditional explanation or interpretation of the word karma. It also is found in the Buddhist scriptures, where Buddha says, Effects follow their causes, as the wheels of the cart follow the foot of the oxen. Therefore, we are dealing with cause and effect. We are not dealing with punishment, per se. We are not referring to a condition after death or in life in which evil forces take over the life or consciousness of a human being. We are not relating to demonology, nor to a Hades populated by ghosts and monsters. The word is simply a term to signify that the effects are inherent in their causes. Scientifically, this would probably not be seriously disputed. We observe every day that causes produce consequences. But most people are so much interested in their own ideas about consequences that they overlook the problem of causation. Today, as we look around us, we see an almost classical example of how causes produce their effects. How the way we do things becomes the way in which we are rewarded or punished. Karma is not a punishment bestowed by heaven. It is not a painful uh, work given by deity to wayward children. Karma is simply the fact that there are rules in the game of life, rules in creation, rules that are just as inflexible as the law of gravity, rules that cannot be violated, and long ages of contemplation has built these rules into the theological writings of most of the nations of the world. These rules are first observed. Our remote ancestors saw them. They did not know what they meant, and they did not know why they happened. But they learned through thousands of years of experience that things that they did had consequences, and that these consequences were more or less inevitable they found in those days that the individual who broke the common rules of life suffered he suffered not because a divine power looked down on him and punished him he suffered simply because he broke the law of cause and effect this law is impersonal it is just it cannot be arbitrated And it cannot be not mollified or changed by almost any process that we can think of. Actually, therefore, we live in a world in which we have to be thoughtful of what we do if we wish to enjoy the maximum benefits of existence. The purpose of knowledge, finally, is to discover what we can do that does not result in trouble. Ignorance, (laughs) consequently, is the condition of being unaware that what we do has consequences. Now, we are mostly willing to accept certain visible forms of consequences. We know that if we eat the wrong foods, we will have dyspepsia. We know that if we become bound to drugs or narcotics or alcohol, We will pay for this indiscretion we know that we are capable of improving our living or destroying ourselves according to our understanding and application of the principles of cause and effect so the philosophy has as its primary purpose an effort to demonstrate clearly for the benefit of all concerned that you cannot make a mistake without getting into some kind of trouble Now, we can say that people do not know when they make a mistake. In certain cases, this is true. But in the majority of instances, the mistake is intentional. It is intentional because the individual is more interested in getting something that he wants or avoiding something he should face than he is in thinking about the law of cause and effect. He thinks that evasion is possible, which it is not. He thinks that he can overlook rules in nature and that nature will overlook these mistakes. It will not happen this way because practically every mistake that can be made has consequences which are unfavorable. Now of course we can't all be perfect in everything we will all be uh, subject to the mistakes for a long time to come. But one of the commonest things that we might be able to do would be to build a pattern of the more common, simple, and obvious mistakes and how to avoid them. We should be teaching children certain rules to avoid mistakes on the consequential theory that these rules must be followed. Or, su- or trouble will follow. So karma be- becomes in our personal living as a force to take the place of the uh, purgatories of ancient theologies. Instead of the individual going to some mysterious place after death where he will be boiled in oil, <laughs> he can uh, escape this very morbid and melancholy pact by realizing that the effects of causes are worked out on the same plane where the causation occurs. If we make a mistake on the physical level, we will pay for it, physically. If we do something noble and glorious on the, uh, the physical level, we will be rewarded accordingly. Karma is much, as much deals with rewards as it does with punishments. If our mistakes are never overlooked, our virtues are not forgotten either. Everything we do right has certain enduring consequences for our betterment, improvement, and security. Therefore, karma actually is impersonal. It has nothing really to do with what we want or what we do not want. Karma has to do with what we have done, why, and how it has to do with the simple payment of debt it is like the individual who borrows more money than he can pay and in the end lands into bankruptcy this is not because god determined uh, to break him it is not because these laws are written in the scriptures it is really because the individual has done something he should not do and he either did it from the, from ignorance or from intent. Now, in the philosophies of life, ignorance is no excuse beyond a certain point. The individual who makes mistakes he doesn't know about and has no way of estimating can get into some trouble, but there are forms of forgiveness or, barb, or Bard in Gilead which will help him. But the individual generally does not have unintentional mistakes because the things he does while he gets mistakes are things he knows about and therefore knows that he shouldn't have done them and often regrets even before the results set in. Now this leaves many people in the arms of a quandary. If everything we do has consequence suppose we do nothing. Suppose we wrap up in isolation and sit like St. Simon's Delites on the top of a column in the Libyan desert. We we don't speak to anyone. We don't do anything. We live as nearly helplessly as possible, ask no one for anything, and tell no one anything. Would this settle karma? Yes, it would. But what is the karma of taking that attitude? (laughs) The individual who sits alone long enough is paying karma right at that moment. He has given up making one kind of a mistake, has made another, and is sitting alone in the desert trying to understand the new mistake that he has just made. (laughs) (laughs) To do nothing, therefore, is not a solution. The only proper solution is to try through study, thought, and experience to do those things which are useful. From the moment of birth on, the individual is subjected to factors and factions with which he must contend. He must adjust to a world which perhaps he does not fully appreciate, or does not wish to tolerate. But actually he is here for a purpose. We are all here for one purpose primarily, and that is to grow. No matter what we think of it, this world is a schoolhouse and in this schoolhouse we are here to learn lessons and the two factors that are important in our education are is the education itself correct and have we the courage and to follow it if it is. Young people should understand that law cause and effect or karma is not theological. It really has nothing to do with the religious beliefs of people it has appeared in, in almost every religion because it is a dominant factor in ethics. But law of cause and effect is not part of theology. It is just as much part of science, or philosophy, or ethics, or art, or literature. It is part of a complete pattern of life. It rules the businessman, and it rules the poet. It governs the doctor and the bishop. These rules are all applicable to every walk of life, but they are definitely based upon a simple concept. You cannot do anything without causing a consequence of some kind. Now, of course, the the knack of it, we might say, is to keep on doing those things with the consequences of which are enjoyable. Karma, therefore, is not merely an instrument of punishment. Karma gives us just as many rewards as it seems to give us penalties. But both the rewards and penalties are due to ourselves. We are the maker of karma and destiny in our own personal lives. There is no way of blaming this upon some vast universal mystery. Actually, of course, cause and effect is recognized in most sciences. It is recognized in law and medicine. It is recognized in ethics and most of the philosophical systems of the world. But it is there because it is just as much a part of us as breathing or blood pressure or any of the anatomical, physiological, or uh, biophysical functions of the human being. So having settled in our own minds one simple point that what we do is the basis of what we are and what we are doing now is the basis of what we will be in times to come, we then come upon another attitude that has arisen which is more theologized, and that is what we are doing now may have a relationship to the past, are we paying old debts now? This is a serious matter because there has been some discontent and disparagement of this concept. Actually, however, the individual comes into this life with his past inside of him. It is part of his consciousness. It is part of his experience. Therefore, in most instances, the individual sets his past to work again in this life. When he grows up selfish, he might have brought the selfishness with him because it was part of the fact that he had not outgrown it. But that selfishness expressing in this life will cause the troubles which start the reactions of cause and effect. Therefore, it is the the weakness in ourselves that perpetuates the unfinished business of human evolution. Until this is fully understood, we cannot control the situation. But if we do not wish to be burdened by past karma, we must make sure that we have paid the bill when the mistake was made. If we haven't, then we have unfinished business. And that unfinished business is to learn to understand why our own attitudes must inevitably react upon us somewhere, sometime. There's no way of escaping them, but there is a way in the sense of transmuting them. So there is an alchemy also in karma. There is something about it that is very much like a remedial course in healing. The physical person, through wrong diet, through wrong exercise, through dissipation, gets sick, and the body becomes the instrument of the karma. The body is suffering for the mistakes. Of that which lives in the body. Now, if this can go on indefinitely, the individual can say, This is fate, it's a, it is inevitable that I shall have heart attacks or that the kidneys will give out. And he, the individual can just go along until he dies of his complaints. Or he may decide that life is still worth living and that he'd better do something about his mistakes. If therefore he sets to work to correct the mistakes that are destroying him, the mistakes he has corrected cannot destroy him because they have ceased to exist. Therefore most karma ceases to have to function when the reason for it is exhausted. If the person has learned the lesson, he does not face it twice. If he has done what he should have done anywhere along the line, and had faced it, the issue would be dead. But as a matter of fact, very few people, as you will know if you look around, really face into their own mistakes. The first thing they try to do is to blame the mistake on something else. At the moment, our greatest uh, scapegoat for mistake is either politics or economics. We blame these for all of our troubles. Well, the only reason why we have these troubles is because they are part of our acceptances in life. The individual does not want to make bad karma, but he wants to make the last dime he can on any job that he has. He does not really prevent the ulterior motives which begin to produce karma. An ulterior motive is a magnificent cause for karma. And it will move in with all intensity, not because he doesn't like us, not because God is mad at us, not because the devil wants to claim us as his own, but simply because we have failed to correct a common mistake which our own conscience and character should have told us about. Therefore, conscience is something inside the individual that is forever warning against mistakes warning against compromises of one kind or another. Now, conscience, conscience, of course, functions best in a convivial attitude. The individual's conscience works best in a society in which consciousness is strong. Whereas now, where consciousness is not very strong, conscience does not work very well. The individual has to stand against the mistakes by a personal action of his own will. Now when we get all mixed up in this kind of an involved economic structure as we are today, it seems almost inevitable that individuals will develop wrong attitudes toward life. They will become desperate, they will become frightened, they will develop hates, there will be terrorism, massacres, civil war, mutiny, and everything you can think of. But these things are not due to the punishments of heaven. They are due to the unfinished business of our own. They are due to the fact that we have not set up in ourselves the cures for the ailments that are closing in on us. We are not making the basic changes that would result in a new level of effects. We are keeping on the old causes, hoping to force or bless or fight our way through. We are here doing exactly what has made the mistakes of the past and we are doing it with the desperate determination to get by in a happy way while doing the things that must make us unhappy. So this type of thing comes into karma. Now the other side of the coin is also worth remembering that there is not anything that happens in life that is good, that is lost. The uh, idea that the deity has a book and writes all these good deeds in the book and adds it up for our advantage is not quite correct, but it's a good symbolism, but that's all. Uh, The book is in ourselves. The things we have done right become the basis of the growth and development and liberation of the human soul. The individual who has done what is right may have limitations, may have some suffering because it is not possible to do what is right in a society that does not recognize right. But the individual is a passing motion in this society. He is born, he suffers, and he dies. But his character is his own and goes with him to eternity. Therefore, he may have to sacrifice some advantages here in order to ensure that he will be in better condition in the course of the future. This is why we look forward to a new age. A new age is one in which the entities of a previous generation, who are supposed to have learned something, begin to come back into incarnation. And coming back, bring with them the new growth they have made, the new understanding they have achieved, and the new longings for a better way of life. And each individual returning with a little more integrity brings about a civilization with greater integrity. It all adds up to progress. Now in daily contact, we have another peculiar habit. And I notice this a great deal from people who come to me for one reason or another. Mistakes which cause suffering. The suffering is keenly remembered. But things that go well are not noted. The individual seems to take it for granted that his rewards should always be good and therefore nothing unusual. But the rewards that are not good are painful and these are very unusual. So the person has a tendency to overlook his blessings in favor of his misfortunes. I have talked to many people who have outlined at great length all the miseries they've gone through, but after some conditioning we discover they had some pretty good things happen to them which they did not even remember. Once the mind settles on misery it is hard to move it. It wants to continue negative thinking. This caters to another problem in human nature and that is self-pity and if there is a creation that is sorry for itself it is humanity it has been sorry for itself from the first day therefore the desire to be sorry for oneself uh, sort of has a dignity about it. it it has a maturity about it the sufferer feels superior he has had a greater and more dismal existence <coughs> he is subject to martyrdoms that have made him very important in his own sight But he has not learned the important lesson of all, and that is that he must understand cause and effect. He must realize that the causes of the things that make him miserable are in himself, not in society. And the causes of the nice things, which he will not admit, these causes are also in himself and pass unnoticed. So it is very important for people to realize that karma, or consequence, is not merely punishment. It is the individual achieving that which he deserves. And the more constructive his deserving may become, the greater his good cause and effect will function. So we think very definitely of the importance of building positive patterns of conduct that we are not here to estimate the punishments that we are going to receive. We are here, rather, to so live that these punishments fade out. On the basis of the problems we are confronted with in in society today, we can look at the world as it is. We can look at the different attitudes that ruled conduct. And I think most people will realize that the world at this time is not governed by the best possible attitudes. It is governed by selfishness. It is governed by uh, ambitions that are false or or excessive. It is developing around a financial center that is unendurable. And it is also exploiting and destroying the natural resources. All these things are happening. Every newspaper has articles on them. Every individual knows something about these matters, but he continues to ignore them, either believing there is nothing he can do about them or that he is too busy doing other things that he prefers to do. But the great working of karma, which sometimes brings a human being to the edge of chaos, is bringing the collective humanity of which we are a part also to the brink of chaos. As St. Augustine pointed out long ago in the uh, days of the Antinicene Fathers, the human being has certain uh, privileges of energy. There are things he can do and things he cannot do. One of the things he can do is improve himself. One of the things he cannot do successfully is to dominate other people. The moment he begins to dominate other people, he creates a reaction. And on the level of religion, whenever religions go out to proselyte and determine by force or otherwise to conquer masses of human beings, these religions themselves are in grave trouble and ultimately come to an inglorious end. Everything that is wrong ultimately fails. There is no way of escaping this inevitable fact. Now, in ourselves, within our own natures, we have a certain type of consciousness, insight, understanding, or whatever you want to call it, by means of which we intuitively recognize values that we do not wish to consciously acknowledge. We call this conscience, but it is more than that. It is the subconscious set within ourselves by which we participate in the universal plan of things. Way down deep in ourselves, we know the rules. But by the time we have filtered this knowledge through emotion, thought, and action, it has lost the name of significance in many cases. But down inside of each individual, the law of cause and effect is in existence at all times. It is part of this over-self of Emerson. It is part of this divine part of man which while enclosed in body and encased in material concerns is still alive and well. So we have to realize that when the voice inside of ourselves warns us, we should give very definite consideration to that warning. Now the law of cause and effect, they say, can't be proved as far as the moral issues are concerned. But this is not strictly true either the moral issues are provable and the ethical life of the individual can be made scientific Lord Bacon points this out in the advancement of learning that if we want to know more about religion we study science if we want to know about uh, science we study philosophy and if we want to know about religion philosophy and science we study art these are all interrelated factors all of them subject to the laws of cause and effect. And everywhere we turn, the rules are the things we have to search for. For if we do not have the rules and the courage to abide them, our lives will be a series of conflicts and contradictions with karma manifesting principally as discomfort. There's no reason why this has to be true, however, if we are able to handle the situations that we create. Now there's another point that the oriental philosophers have made a little more clearly perhaps than we have here and that is the individual is not responsible personally for that which is beyond his comprehension that which he does not know and cannot find out he is not responsible for. He is only responsible for the gamut of his attained ethics he has to live within the range of what he knows is right and what he knows is wrong. And the karma that we suffer from results from that which we know and do not assume and accept. We cannot be held responsible for conditions that are completely beyond our consciousness or beyond our control. But we are responsible for everything that is within the familiar pattern of the known. Now what are the patterns of the known, for the most part? For the individuals themselves, It's his daily life, it's his conduct, it is his growing up. The rules also involve his education, his schooling, his trade, his art, his profession, or whatever he selects as a livelihood. Going a little further, it comes into his emotional life. He becomes a person with the responsibility for a family. Both men and women, therefore, share this responsibility equally. They know what it means, and if they do not know, it is because they have deliberately ignored it. Because anyone who wishes to know the facts about common occurrences can find them if he wants to. So he comes into a family life, and together, the, the husband and wife accept the responsibilities of cause and effect as these apply to the family. The neglect of these laws in family relationships can be very serious. For instance, in a family, if one of the parents at least, becomes completely selfish, indifferent of the rest of the family, and goes out in search of fame or fortune, then that is creating bad karma for that person, a karma which they must ultimately face. Uh, The result of this karma is a detriment to society And under those conditions, karma appears as punishment. But it is also to be remembered that this detriment to the others may draw out of them a greater good than they would otherwise have ever known. They may rise above this loss, this failure of one member, and become very strong and brilliant and wonderful people. Therefore, that which is a punishment for one may be in turn an ultimate benefit for someone else. But the fact that the others benefit in no way reduces the karma of the person who neglects. These things fit together in very intricate patterns. Then they go out into life. There's, all the, there's all, there are all the things the person wants to be and to do and to have. He builds a career. Now the women are going out and building careers also. And the world of careers is becoming tremendously important. Now, career generally means that the person becomes a better person, better equipped face-to-face life, and better able to achieve uh, the integrities of independence. But for most part, that is not the way it is used. This uh, advancement is not controlled by any ethical or moral motivation. The individual wants greatest liberty to do exactly what he wants to do. And if what he wants to do is against the rules of karma, he's in trouble. And most of the time it is. The individual who is a wastrel, the individual who is extravagant and dissipated, the individual who allows his morality to collapse because of wealth, this is all karma-causing. And the karma is going to be far more difficult uh, to overcome than the financial ascension to which the person has made an adjustment. Therefore, we have all the way along interlocking one man's karma of reward and another man's punishment. But it all works from the integrity center within the person themselves. And this integrity center must not be violated. Now knowledge as we know it today is, is, is claims all kinds of purposes and motivations, but the essential reason for knowledge, the real basis of our desire to know, is that we must learn to know what is right and wrong for ourselves. We must discover the truth, the life, the pattern which is possible for us to fulfill without danger or pain or suffering we may have certain limitations, but the limitations in turn may also be liberations, depending on how we look at them. Now at the end of a certain length of time, the human being begins to drift, drift into what we might term retirement. is getting to the end of most of the uh, adventures of living. He has gone as far as he can industrially and economically and so forth and so forth. And he is now coming to the time when he must review and regulate his own life. Now, one of the unfortunate aspects of karma, if we wish to call it such, is neurosis. Neurosis is not an individual who is really in great trouble. A neurosis is an individual Is in an individual who has misinterpreted, misunderstood, and misused the advantages of living. He has, he has accepted everything as punishment that was in any way an interference with his personal pleasure. So the uh, law tells us, for one thing, that pleasure is good. We should all have it. But it is not the primary purpose for existence. We are not created primarily simply to have fun. On the other hand, good karma coming can be very amusing, very entertaining, and very refreshing. But it has to be earned. The older person, settling down, begins to wonder what he was here for in the first place. He does not understand, he does not know, he does not realize. He lives in a world which, to him, is a mystery. And he has learned very little about life, except that he has gradually parting from most of the attitudes that he held firmly in earlier years so this all adds up to the fact that if the human being was here forever and if uh, the gift of immortality were generally was generally available we might have a different attitude toward life but life is really a day school it is part of a long program of education And the most important thing for each individual in this school is to graduate with honors. Now, when you graduate leave school, you can graduate with honors only if you're a good student. You can also graduate without honors if you're a good athlete and uh, support the finances of the institution. Now, on this basis, we have quite a number of uh, athletes, not necessarily who play games or sports, but who are graduating from school on the basis of something they've done for the school rather than something they've learned from it. So this problem is that when you graduate you need to graduate uh, with a passing mark or a high mark, but this does not mean that your education is complete. It is complete only when it advances you to the purpose for which you have de- devoted your educational career. Most of all, it is a, an education that enables you to estimate yourself, estimate what your abilities are, what your dynamic interests are, and not leave you in the general degree that you graduate without any purpose for education. Education can be a luxury it can be a fad or a fancy but it is only useful if the individual uses it to understand the operation of cause and effect in his own life therefore he should have a course on karma in every grade and he should learn how to get to graduate from that course cum laude instead of at the bottom of the class the uh, problem of karma then It means that we are here to find out more about what we can do and what we can't do. It is too late to find out what we can't do on our deathbeds. This is not what was intended. We should be learning something every single day. And we should poke into our own subconscious and find out what we can learn immediately that makes today better for us or will affect us constructively in the comparatively near future. We must therefore begin to study on a life principle that we are expecting things to have a harvest like themselves, that whatever we do will be done to us. Whatever we learn will be able to use. What we do not learn or mislearn will be a detriment to us. Now, in the past, when life was largely uh, suburban, and persons came from small communities, the opportunities for grand knowledge were few. But today, uh, in the various media available, we can see the whole pattern of world mistakes played out before our eyes. We can see different faults and failings all over the world and the consequences. We can understand terrorism. We can realize narcotics addiction. We can recognize the causes of all these things because they're played out in front of us. We have never had so much available evidence in various ways. Now, it's possible quite true that some of this evidence is wrong. There are definite mistakes in the spreading of news or the estimation of events. But for the most part, the facts themselves stand. And these facts, while they may be misinterpreted, are enough in themselves to remind us of the facts about ourselves and to remind us that in studying our own facts, we also misinterpret them as generously as possible. We are not willing to accept them any more than nations and civilizations are willing to accept their mistakes. In the last uh, two or 3,000 years, we have fought more wars than we should ever fight. We have also fought many of these in search for truth, in search for uh, religion, in effort to improve or reform mankind, but we have left the earth with the bodies of the dead scattered about promiscuously. Actually, we should be able to just look back for a few years to see what we ought to be learning this mysterious, and inevitable consequence of action. That the, we should see how, one by one, the dictators fall, one by one the criminals fall, one by one the selfish fall. All these things are obvious to the thoughtful person, but the individual who has his own freshness seldom understands or accepts this evidence. He is going to be different. Other people may have to pay their debts, but he is going to find some way of getting out of his. This is very common in finance and has led to constant ruin and impoverishment. Actually, the only answer to the whole problem is ethical integrity. There is no way of getting away from karma unless the individual is mentally, emotionally, morally, and physically honest. Honesty is the secret of survival, and it minimizes nearly all the problems of life. The individual who is emotionally and mentally honest has a great deal more chance of being physically healthy, because the disturbances of the emotions are what cause a great deal of sickness. Almost all of the troubles that we have arise from the interference that we create between the levels of our own constitution. The mind betrays the heart, the heart betrays the health, and all these things fall into a common ruin. But we have to realize that there are laws of karma that apply to every aspect of existence. There are laws of karma that are peculiarly created for the benefit of bumblebees. There are laws of karma that are necessary for the motion of stars. There are laws of cause and effect controlling everything that exists in the universe and existence itself. Therefore, all things are surviving because they live in an intricate pattern where survival is necessary and where the breaking up of survival is destructive to the entire pattern of life. Bring this down to our little daily living and the problems that we all have to work with The problem is to start in by carefully estimating the relationship between our actions and integrity or the uh, relationship between our pressures and common sense. Is the individual, for example, who has found increased or improved financial condition making good use of this additional gain? is he been faithful unto small things so that he could be made faithful unto larger things. Now, maybe he was grateful for the small things because he couldn't help himself. But when he got greater things, he began to be so happy about it all that he broke every rule in the book. This all becomes part of the problem. The more we have, the more responsible we become for what we do with it and the proper use of it is a factor in karma, a very definite factor. Ben Franklin summed up the simple words waste not and want not, and that's cause and effect. Just a simple statement of it. Every individual must use what he needs and has well, or else suffer from the karma of having abused them. Who is hungry. All kinds of uh, elevations of a state are blind and meaningless unless the elevation causes the individual to become a better servant of humanity. Wherever promotion results in in increased finance and privilege and no responsibility, bad karma is not far away. All the way along, everything we do has to be estimated in terms of consequence. If we have children, we have to take the time to educate them. If we haven't a proper job, we must do it well. We cannot shoddy our work without ultimately causing karma. And if enough people shoddy their work, it is almost impossible for any of us to get a piece of work done honorably. This is not because the devil has been whispering in ears all the way along. It is simply because we are all setting the example to each other and for the most part the example at the moment is not good. So we have to begin this way to really try to find out what is possible to us so that we will not make these karmic decisions that hurt us. We should so live that as we drift through the years of life that we have as much peace and harmony as possible and and continue to be as useful as possible. The perfect life is the useful life. The idea that success is to avoid or evade responsibility and labor. is These are fictitious ideas. Karma will punish the individual who believes that what he has should be kept in his own pocket as long as he lives. All these things represent misuses of things and karma is the great pageantry of use and misuse. Now we look around a little bit and we find people who are doing very lovely things, very beautiful things, very wise things. Now this does not mean that these wiser people don't suffer a little. Everyone suffers in an unfinished universe. But it means that in compensation for a misfortune, there is such an internal enlightenment that the misfortune loses nearly all of its tragedy. The individual who does the best he can, really and honorably, when faced with a responsibility, is given unusual resources. Sometimes he prays for divine help, but the prayer is backed by his own integrity, and if those work together, the job is liable to become solved or the problem be met. So all these things rela- relate so definitely to human conduct and personal integration that it seems that we should give this matter a great deal of careful thought and try to find ways in which we can ca- a cure this mysterious disease of indifference and uh, lassitude with which most people seem to be suffering. We all talk to folks every day And we find more and more people are dissatisfied with the actions of their associates. The individual, even though he is not honest himself, objects to the dishonesty of others. He he is looking for a better world even though he is contributing nothing to produce it. So here we have about five billion, somewhere near five billion human beings living on a small ball in space now this little assemblage which looks very big to us does not very not not look very big for, from a constellation far off it is because it's a little molehill on which we live but here we are with lessons to learn and these lessons are first-grade instruction in the ruling of the cosmos if somewhere along the line is some schools of philosophy believe, our evolution will ultimately result in our becoming part of a great evolutionary program that will come into existence in the future, that each one may have an executive place in the great unfoldment of the constellations and stars and elements. If this be true, and it may be, we can't say it won't be true, then this is part of our educational field. Here we are trying to solve a a very simple problem, a problem that is not beyond our capacity. We want to live quietly and peacefully. We want to have enough to take care of ourselves respectably and with reasonable pleasantness. We want to get along with each other in amity. We want to have our beliefs respected, and in time we will learn to respect the beliefs of others. We want a harmonious, pleasant world. And when two people out of this hope both marry, they expect to live or hope to live in a happy and harmonious family. They want the things to happen immediately which are the greater good for all concerned. They are perfectly willing, if they care, to do something to motivate the good and well-being of others. Now reforms nearly always start not with pure intellection, but very largely with emotion. Actually, we get further by the love of truth than we are trying to understand it. The moment our affections are warm, kindly, and friendly, and we recognize the natural and inevitable tie between all living things. When this begins to sink into our consciousness, we find that love takes the place of law in many things. But love is a fulfillment of law, and not an escape from it. If love is real, the law will not be broken. If love is unreal, the law will be broken. And if the law is broken, the love will fail. This is all part of a very big pattern. But the kindness of heart, unselfishness, integrity, values, peace, and affection, responsibility, recognition, and admiration for achievement. All these things are part of building a a world in which the law of cause and effect is going to produce the results we most want. We want to live in a world which is right, but we have to cause right or it will not happen. We pray to heaven to solve our problems, but heaven does not solve things that way heaven determines that each individual must have the vital experience of solving his own problems. Now, we all feel, you know, that there's somewhere there's something that can get us out of our difficulties. And we like to think that perhaps religion will do it. Well, religion will do it if that religion inspires us to do it for ourselves. If, on the other hand, this religion promises us freedom from the responsibilities we deserve will not acknowledge the correction of the proper mistakes. If the religion throws all burdens on the Lord and lets the individual do as he please, then we will continue into the future with exactly the problems we have today. To solve problems is a job. It is a profession. It is a dedication. It is an inevitable duty. Now, working with people a great deal, as we have, we find out some problems that are comparatively frequent. One of the most common problems, I guess, today is this problem of dissatisfaction with world conditions. We don't like things the way they are. We don't like bombings. We do not like to have terrorist groups wandering about the earth. We hope and desire to have a normal and reasonable kind of existence. Now, why don't we have this? It's because we have not built it into the contracts between nations. We have not said that a treaty is finally a bondage of integrities. When the United Nations meets, it it should meet with each candidate, each member dedicated to truth and not coming down with the information given him by some military dictator in the background. We cannot have any of the things we want without integrities. And chaos is the calmer of lack of integrity. It is what happens when nobody does it right. Now, a lot of people want to do it right, but the the interferences are hard to face, are hard to cope with. So we can say that the best chances for doing it right are among people who have dedicated themselves to a self-improvement, who are seeking in one way or another to grow, to be better, not in order that they may dominate others, but in order that they may enlighten themselves. If we recognize a divine principle at the core of our own existence, if we know that there is a God in us And that this God within us is part of the inheritance that we have from space. We have within ourselves an inevitable power for right. We have within ourselves the capacity to grow, to enlighten ourselves, to perfect our own temperaments and dispositions, and to do those things which are most useful to our world. This is in us. It is the seed of the everlasting, sowed in the earth of the transitory. It is that which is our proper and inevitable mystery of the seed, the mustard seed, which though the smallest of all seeds grows into a great tree for the shelter of the birds and for shadow and shade for human beings. So our enlightenment coming from the divine seed within ourselves, has to be one way or another developed. It has to be developed sometimes against a lot of adversities. And we may assume at the present moment that most people reaching maturity have not had necessary instruction in this particular area. They have grown up under a system which is largely materialistic and therefore is continuing with all the old problems. It has grown up in a narrow atmosphere an atmosphere of self-centeredness even though it has been comparatively moderate in its ambitions but it has not been a dedication to purpose I think that we should recognize the importance that every young person growing up should in some way or another be aware of a sacrament and not one of the sacraments that we generally acknowledge in the church but the sacrament of dedication That just as surely as we have baptism and we have the sacrament of marriage, confession, absolution, Eucharist, all these things, that we also have the sacrament of dedication. Not a sacrament to become a clergyman, but a sacrament to dedicate life to its essential purpose. That somewhere along the line, each individual should come face to face with the realization of the natural responsibilities that are his in life. And in, actually, ancient people had this. It's strange that it was one of the things that dropped out. But back in the very early days of civilization and into some of the more recent uh, oriental systems, a child was not born a citizen. This is very important thinking. A child was not born as, as a citizen. And it had only a milk name. In other words, it had a child name. It grew up in the family with this child name. And in Egypt, the child wore a lock of hair, sort of twisted down over the eye. and The rest of the head was bald, shaved and clean. But this lock was the child lock. And at a certain period, and certain time in its life, the child was taken to the temple with all the ceremony necessary, with all the relatives and friends, the whole community uh, in the cheering area taking care of making this a festive occasion. And at this moment, the child, now old enough to make a personal decision, usually in the middle or later teens, took the oath of obligation to his world. He was transformed from a child to a person. This was true also of women. It was not limited to men. This was a right of citizenship. The person who dedicated himself to the service of good, who offered his life for the protection of his family, his community, and his world, became a citizen. He became a citizen by accepting the responsibilities of adulthood. He became a citizen by becoming an example of right in his community. He was a dedicated and sanctified person living to fulfill the real real reason for a human being's existence. Then his child lot was cut off and his name was given to him, his grown-up name, a name that indicated his place in the tribe. And when this was given to him, He took his oath of obligation to the tribe, and when the tribal members met, he sat with them. He was part then of the family to which he belonged, not the just family of his own house, but the family of the clan, the tribe, the group of which he was a member. And for that group, he was dedicated to live to serve it and to die to save it if necessary. There was no longer any of this uh, going off by yourself t- to make it rich or something of that nature. It was all part of a system. because without this consecration, antiqu- antiquity could never have survived. It was survived it survived because everyone stood firm for that which the tribe stood for. And the tribal was wisdom, the Orenda of the tribe descended from the heroes of the past who had given their lives to make the present possible. They had gone out and sacrificed everything so that their descendants could have a better life. And it was the privilege and right of these improving descendants to honor uh, the virtues that they had inherited and protect them for the future. Now this citizenship of of the tribe is a very interesting and important thought at least. It changes the whole aspect of things. The young individual is not out to make his own way primarily. He will make his own way in all probability because his dedication doesn't make him useful, or useless. It makes him useful. It makes him able to live a better person himself, to do his job better, and at the same time always remember his relationship to the group and his part in their success. So this type of thinking was part of a cure for what we might term cause and effect as we know it today. If we had brought forward the causes of good, if we had brought forward the wisdom of antiquity, we would not now be in this particular condition. The attitude or belief that we should forget the past and live in the glorious present and make it worse in the future is not very successful. It's not going to do much for us, but it's going to do a lot to us if we do not gradually recover from the present attitudes. So when then comes the idea of what happens when you do it right. Well, when you do it right, you see gradually the good of the human being, the good of the neighbor, And the achievement of the human brotherhood which has been the great teaching of religion since the dawn of time becomes possible we can be one family not because we all agree with each other but because all of us agree with principles under which we live we believe in the right of the other person just as much as our own we do not step on the liberties or values of other people but we tread carefully upon their weaknesses and try to help to strengthen the life of the person. We are here as a family, and this family has collective karma just as well as it has individual karma. And the condition we see today is simply the inevitable outcome of long-abused privileges, long-wasted resources and a continuing emphasis upon selfishness. Now, many people feel there's nothing left but to be selfish, and they hope that the uh, end of their lives will release them from this wheel of Ixion upon which they have crucified themselves. This is not necessarily true, however, because the law of karma is also correlative with reincarnation or rebirth and rebirth is simply the opportunity to complete unfinished business. and business is always unfinished until the individual attains enlightenment. Enlightenment is the final victory of the internal over the external aspects of life. It is the victory of God over the misuses which we have associated with religion, science, philosophy, and the arts. Actually, reincarnation is the next step in this tremendous road that we all have to follow. Re- reincarnation is another day in school. It is another opportunity to grow and all we have accomplished today in this life are brought forward from previous existences. All these virtues and strengths become part of a new standard of education. The time must come and is coming uh, when education must take on its final purpose. Namely, that education is necessary to fit the individual to become part of a great motion of life to which he belongs. A motion which leads through time and space to final identity with cosmic integrity. It has to do with the fulfillment of all things. It has to do to do with the achievement uh, of a purpose for life. That is one of the problems we have. We have more doctors we know what to do with. We have more attorneys than we need. We are now developing the largest following of computer operators that will be necessary in the next 2,000 years. <laughs> By that time, there won't be any computers. All of these rather foolish things show how we will take time and energy, go through universities, or take crash courses, all to get two dollars an hour more in on the paycheck, or to get a job, or something of this nature. We will do much for physical security, but nothing for the integrities upon which life and physical security must ultimately depend. We must begin to realize that we have to grow and growth is is an acceptance of realities. We grow when we can take an event in our own lives, dissect it and find what it means. We can do a certain amount of growing if we take a mistake which we have nursed for a long time, gradually learn to know why it is a mistake and decide not to repeat it. We can use our own lives as handy textbooks and reference works about things we need to know. We have to do this type of thing or else continue to drift along Uh, in the uncertainties which most people suffer from and at some time these uncertainties catch up to them and make them pretty miserable. So the uh, rich man who died uh, takes nothing with him but what he has learned. And if he has devoted enough time to material investments and banking, He's not going to be much good in a different world where these do not exist, or even this world if he comes back when they are no longer practiced. We have to build enough of the now to protect ourselves in daily living. But we must also build in enough of tomorrow to serve us when tomorrow comes. We must do what is necessary to make this life useful, necessary, and helpful but we must also be laying the foundations for future lives in which better values will become the basis of better living. In India and other parts of the Orient, the law of karma is just simply accepted so completely that no one really doubts it. It's not something you have to argue about or convert someone to. To the Oriental mind, it is the only reasonable answer. What, help? what else is there reasonable for the individual to work with? There is a possibility that he doesn't survive, and that they, there is nothing. That when he uh, passes on, uh, good and bad cease together, because he has ceased. Now, in a universe which has gone through as much as this one has, in the last million or two years, it seems rather foolish to announce that everything is ending in nothing that all this great struggle should mean that each individual shall pass on, never know again what happened, and never have an again in himself. He simply ceases to exist. The materialists have tried to make this look attractive by suggesting that we leave behind us our memories, our achievements, and some kind of a memorial to our accomplishments. But if we do not even live to know that this has happened, there's very little real satisfaction. in in ceasing to exist even if we are represented by a stone here on this planet the next thing is what about the future do we go to some abstract place better or worse uh, where we must face the consequences of our actions Uh, where if we are wrong we are punished if we are virtuous we are punished also unless we belong to the right group that gives us a certain survival but we get there and what is there there is nothing but a vast ghost land of suffering and misery individuals punished for things they did not know enough to avoid millions who had not been very bad or very good suffering together in some cruel limbo under the domination of an infernal power Uh, which should have never had a place in a God-given universe If this is forever and ever, and that the individual is going to suffer in this respect, I think it's high time for most people to come to a rather simple solution. If this is true, we're not going to believe it anyway. We're going to refuse to accept eternal damnation for the transitory mistakes of modern human ignorance. We might need it chastising. Someone just slap us on the wrist or something. But this idea of eternal damnation is certainly no longer acceptable to a conscious or intelligent human mind. We also have other possibilities uh, as to uh, the, the joining with the right church or something that we have a better opportunity over there, a better consideration. But the fact remains, the whole thing is frustration. The whole thing ends with the simple fact that the average individual leaves this world not bad enough to go to hell and not good enough to go to heaven. (laughs) Under such circumstances, the answer is inevitable. The only thing to do is come back here and finish it. Nowhere out in space is there anyone that wants us. And is now getting to the point where we don't want each other here. But the only answer is the idea that reincarnation is an opportunity for the individual to overcome his weaknesses, develop more strength of character, become a more positive and constructive factor in the plan of things, and go on until his enlightenment carries him beyond the phases of pain and sorrow which we know on this planet. We need to have this encouragement. We need to have the idea of what was going to happen. And in order to know what is going to happen, the law of karma and law of reincarnation have been linked together. Because the reincarnation is the solution to the imperfection of human life. And karma is the pressure behind the individual to help him to outgrow his mistakes. The pressure of the discomforts of wrongdoing. These are the pressures that karma works with. There is nothing ugly, unpleasant, terrible, or, or tragic about the operations of karma. Karma is by nature kindness because it is forever providing new opportunities for the completion of unfinished business. It helps us to be sure that in the due course of things we shall also develop the consciousness that is necessary to us. Now we might also ask, if this be the case, what about what happens? What are the laws of karma bringing about in the larger pattern of things? What is it that lies beyond for which we are trying to perfect ourselves? Well, in the first place, the perfection of self is really simply a natural necessity that we should unfold our potentials is part of potential itself. The reason why this plant grows is because the seed is planted and each life is a part of the growth of something. Now when we plant a seed of a tree why do we plant it? It's because we hope it will grow into a tree and we hope that that tree will have a reason for existence because we know also that in that tree will be also the perpetuation of itself. Now the fact that these growths are all continuous seems to indicate a universe of unfolding integrities and values. That somewhere in the large mystery of things the separated being, that part of the divine nature which was isolated in in creation and is scattered now through every form of living thing from man to the smallest cell or atom that all this as Pythagoras points out will be gathered up and that in this great moment when all these sparks become one again on that occasion the divine being who is made up of these sparks will become alive again we resurrect or save the divided energies of God return them to their source and the divine power is fulfilled, completed and and, and made perfect by the constant contribution of its parts. when all things gather together God blazes forth in the certainty of itself it blazes forth as the perfection of all things, the sparks return to the flame and all that is not part of the sparks and not part of the worldliness is absorbed again into the essences from which these things came. So that in the end, we are really all all a a great eternal divine power growing up in a multitude of imperfect sparks, gradually becoming liberated from the limitations of matter, and finally returning again to the infinite splendor which is our true nature and substance. What we are going to feel, how we are going to think, or what we are going to do when we are again part of the infinite is rather beyond us at the present time. But we know that it is in the keeping of an eternal power and that the end of all things is perfection. Nothing is lost. There is nothing that can exist that isn't part of this growing thing that must ultimately become perfect in its own right. Consequently, we are all working in a sense, maybe, to rescue the separated parts of the eternal and bringing them together, returning the infinite diversity once more to complete an eternal unity. That we are working all the time for the salvation of the one life that exists in this world, for the universe itself Is suspended from one life and this one life is clothed in the universe and the perfection of this one life through the perfection of its parts is the absolute and abstract resurrection it is the final release of eternal life from the limitations of form but these uh, this life being thus released brings with it something that it could never have had it not divided into its parts, had these parts gradually grow up and become part of itself. But when they become part of itself, then these parts in their own right will know what makes eternity itself, what creates the final and ultimate. And when it's returned to the infinite, it shares the wisdom, the love, the hope, and the eternity of the great power from which it came. In other words, a return to God is an, a, a perfection through effort, a return of the part of the spark to the flame, and that that is in a, not a, a dead loss, a dead silence, a dead deepness somewhere, but that in some mysterious way, when we reach that ultimate union, we will discover that we are in the presence of a creating, created, divine power which functions on one principle alone and that is love. All hates, fears, doubts, beliefs must finally be absorbed in love for love is that which fashions all things. The lack of that love has given us our present disasters and we must finally find our way back again to union with that power which is infinite love and in so doing share in that love And war and sorrow and strife will be no longer in us. And we will be part of that eternity for which we were created and to which we must continually aspire. Thank you very much.
0: All right, we're back. Wow, that was so incredible. Now you know why. I'm such a big fan of Manly P. Hall. His lectures are so jam packed. They're so informative. There's so much information there. You have to listen to it twice. You have to listen to it three times, but it was just a, the deepest, most minute analysis of karma in a cultural, metaphysical, religious all these different filters on how karma works. It was pretty amazing. As usual, when we listen to Manly P. Hall, the guy doesn't take a breath. And just think of how lucky it is if you were like actually around at that time. You actually, you know, you hear the people laughing in the audience. You hear that there is an audience. Imagine if you got to be a person in that audience. That'd be so cool. How did you, what did you think about it, Brent? Oh, I
1: loved it. It's uh, it was a very potent lecture. Uh, there's a lot in there. Like you said, from the personal all the way to the societal to metaphysical universal. There's so many levels that he is able to interweave all together in a short amount of time. I would say for all that he said,
0: it was a lot to unpack. <laughs> it was very dense. I guess that's yeah. the word I'm looking for. It's very dense. dense. I okay. like how he touched on the biblical as a man. So, so shall he reap? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and you go to Buddhism, effects follow causes. You mentioned how ulterior motives cause bad karma. He talked about all the things that cause bad karma. Mostly it's just rooted in selfish desire. And he also he brought up to the table something we talk about on this podcast a lot is that you can be successful if your intentions are in the right place. You can even be opulent, and if your intentions are in the right place, you're it's all good karma. It just depends on what service you're doing. If the service creates the significant surplus of money and you use it in such a way where you have a house that's huge, you have this beautiful, you know, art room or whatever you have in order to recharge, that's okay. The karma isn't bad. It's just all in how you perceive it and your intention, why you're doing the things that you do. So if your service, you know, is rooted in the goal is money, then that's actually bad karma is what he's pointing out.
1: Yeah, it's uh looks more to be about what you, you know that how, whatever you make it's about your service and whatever service you're bringing and that you continue to provide service and to share your gifts with the world that that um put your karma in a different place for sure. I uh I loved the part where he was talking about I mean I loved all the parts but the the one part where he was talking about uh every grade having a class in karma and I was imagining that through like Kindergarten through college, if you had a class in karma as a, uh, you know, spelling, math, karma, I thought that would be pretty, pretty great.
0: I think, yeah, th- what he was really touching on is the fact that it's just not really taught in a functional way no, in society, not. in a way that people understand that there is a cause and effect for your action and your actions. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do the action, there's repercussions, there's effects for those actions. You're selfish, you're mean, you do these horrible things you're going to attract the negative side effects of that, uh, you know, those actions. And they, there's alchemy and karma, which I thought was so cool. The alchemy just keep, keeps coming up and coming up. Um, and, you know, people decide what uh, bad karma is. It's what we know is wrong. There's that intuitive thing like you knew, you knew when you were five years old right from wrong. You really did. Like that intuitive in the grander sense, what felt right, what felt wrong. You knew when you were sneaking stuff, you knew when you were doing things right. All that is what kind of guides you, your conscience, you know, what guides you into a good karmic situation. You know, so that's something you should just really listen to.
1: Absolutely. Um I thought it was also interesting when he was talking about personal versus collective karma and, um, you know, that there is collective karma and what do you do as an individual about that? And, and really coming back to working on yourself and your personal development and being the best person that you can be and uh, creating the, you know, the most, um, you know, performing your good deeds and and being that best person within yourself, and that that ultimately contributes to collective karma.
0: Yeah, as, you're as being better. better you're doing better. You're contributing to the karmic pool. You know, you're you're adding you're adding pluses. You're adding positiveness, positive energy to that karmic pool because people complain.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, they say, "Oh, why does my life suck?" But they they often overlook uh, the problem. You know, of, of the causation, like what's causing it? Why, why is it? Are they suffering because of their own ego? You know, what, did they, are they suffering because they chose to not remain with integrity, to not live life with integrity? Who knows? You don't know. And then he talked about uh, reincarnation and how multiple lives come into play. And are you paying old karmic debts? It's probably not that way. What he was saying is that you probably carry some of your attitudes over, which then creates the karma because you didn't learn the lesson in the previous life. You're carrying over this attitude, and then the attitude puts into play what how you're reacting and then creating new karma.
1: Right, and that it's, you know, he talks about it being cause and effect rather than punishment. You know, like you said, people are complaining, why is my life this way? And it's not about being punished or being the victim. It's that cause and effect at looking at, you know, what you've done, what your actions are and your daily choices. And And, and
0: yeah, and people always kind of overlook the blessings. They focus on the misery mindset. Mm -hmm. They overlook the blessings. And then when they, because they feel like their life's not exactly the way they want. So they're like, Oh, look at all these problems. But then when you stop and, look at the successes the the things in their life that are positive the blessings then you find they're also and in some cases more than equal to the misery so then but then they're not focusing on that at all all the all these people are focusing on is the negative the negative
1: right yeah he talks about that that the good is hardly remembered and you know people have lists of all the bad things and that humans relish in self-pity but that the the good doesn't seem to be nearly remembered even though it tends to be more of a person's lifetime than what they would consider trials. And then also when he says that, um, you know, that suffering loses most of its tragedy when one is working to live with integrity, when you understand the laws and you understand um, that there still will be some suffering and there are mistakes to be made and there are things to learn and grow from, but the actual, the tragedy of that isn't as potent when you understand. You can transmute it. Exactly. You can can change the the tragedy
0: into something that's going to be beneficial. It's going to help you. However, if you become a successful person, you don't have that responsibility. You're blowing tons of cash on stupid things. You're being egotistical, materialistic, vain. That's all bad karma. And that's going to create the effect of whatever, the effect bad karma has on your life. And you have to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. But I just want to say, you know, this has been a fun little hangout. I really appreciate you coming down to the studio on a whim, because I'm going to tell you what happened. People, (laughs) we had a guest scheduled. She's the person, her name's Casey. She created the Portland psychedelic society. She rescheduled. We're going to be back with her next week. You'll notice, you know, as we've, been hanging out these episodes, people reschedule, people are on schedule. They're all humans with lives with different situations. So when things arise and people need to change their plans, then other things come into play. So we had Casey with the Portland psychedelic society scheduled for this week. She rescheduled for next week. So Brian Anderson was so gracious to come to the studio, hang out, listen to this amazing lecture. From one of the greatest lectures in the history of humanity, Manly P. Hall, which we're so blessed to have a recording of, and then actually take notes with me. We're both taking notes like we're just in like a college class. (laughs) We're both just taking notes and and we're gaining and we're comparing notes and we're talking about it. So I I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. Yeah,
1: thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun.
0: It's been a great podcast. And, you know, we'll be back. And, you know, you want to know more about Brynn, of course, you can go to VinylForceHerbs.com. You want to learn more about Manly P. Hall, Philosophical Research Society, PRS.org. And also, just go to YouTube. That's where I found the lecture we were listening to. It's in the public domain. You can also find hundreds of lectures out of the 8,000 that he did in his lifetime, not counting the books, the 8,000 lectures. A significant amount of them are on YouTube for you to listen to. So and glad
1: they've been saved.
0: They've been saved. They've been saved. They were archived from cassettes in some cases. Uh, the miracle is that they're still out there for us. The miracle is that Manley P. Hall is still teaching us from beyond the grave. I hope when you listen to that lecture, because he's so good, it's hypnotizing almost, because there's so much. It's just point after point after point. I hope you really gain something. I hope you love or are learning to love Manly P. Hall as much as I do, because man, I have learned so much from that guy. I can't even tell you. And and it took me a while to find him. Like I studied all different kinds of people for decades and I always would hear Manly P. Hall's name come up, but I never, this was all prior to YouTube, but I never checked out his books. I never really delved into his world so much I would read about him. I knew about him on the periphery, but I didn't know about him up close until YouTube. And I started, you know, around 2006, 2007, people were really starting to upload his lectures. And that's when I really started to do the deep dive into Manly P. Hall. And it's changed my life. And I love Manly P. Hall. And if you listen to everything that he says, especially even in this lecture, it's everything I say. It's everything the great spiritual teachers of the world are saying now. It's everything that the personal development speakers, the true personal development speakers, not the charlatans, but the true personal development speakers, they're all saying the same thing. We want a united planet. We want everyone to be successful. We want to live in harmony with nature. We want to live in harmony with God. We want to live in harmony with. The universe, our alien family, everybody out there, we just want to be so awesome. We want to just be examples of living and loving light on this planet. Living light. We want to be the best we can possibly be. Brynn, did you want to add anything to that?
1: Um, I just, the last thing I wrote down in my notes here that Manly P. Hall said is, love is that which fashions all things.
0: Yeah, and that's something we talk about constantly. Love, 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 love. Everything's man out of love. That's why you're not supposed to fear. Danger is real. Fear is a choice. We talk about that yeah. so much. And I just want you to know that we love you, Manly P. Hall loves you from beyond the grave. Bryn Anderson, Vitalforce <laughs> loves you. I love you. And you know, we're here to just give. We're here to serve. We're here to do our best. And on that note, it's, t- it's time to say goodbye. <laughs>
1: Bye. Thanks for having me, Jake.
0: Midnight on Earth. Tell a friend. See you next week.